0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we discuss the human heart. In a heartbeat, it can continue sustaining human life or take that life. For centuries, it's been a mystery, a medical challenge, and a universal symbol. Its history is the subject of a new book titled Heart, the History. Its author is cardiologist Dr. Sandeep Johar. He is the director of the Heart Failure Program at the Long Island Jewish Medical Center and the author of bestsellers Doctored and "Intern." I spoke with him yesterday and welcomed him home. He attended medical school at Washington University. That's right. I uh, went to medical school here from
1: 1995 to 1998, and uh, I I miss St. Louis a
0: lot. Well, we're glad to hear that. You'll have to come back more often. (laughs) I I will. What makes the heart such an extraordinary organ? Well, I mean, it's probably...
1: The most amazing machine that nature has devised uh, when you think about a machine that pumps three billion times in a typical human lifetime, pumps blood through one hundred thousand miles of blood vessels, never stops working. Uh, a typical adult heart could empty a backyard swimming pool in a week so you 're talking about this uh, this engine that just keeps on running. And it's absolutely essential for our lives. Uh, And and really what's fascinating about it is that the heart has some unique properties that are unlike other organs. Uh, For example, the heart doesn't just pump blood to uh, the brain, the kidneys, the liver. It pumps blood to itself. Um, The heart can't function unless the heart is beating. So in a sense, the heart is self-sustaining. When you think about we can't see our own eyes. Uh, we we have a hard time using our minds to change our way of thinking. But the heart has this sort of self referential property, which is which is amazing. Um and, and let me just say the the, the last piece that, that I, I find fascinating about the heart is that it has um some unique obstacles to treatment or uh surgery. Um most people don't realize that uh, as recently as the late 19th century, every organ in the body had been operated on except the human heart. The brain had been operated on, the liver, the kidney, um, not the heart. And the reasons are pretty obvious. The heart is always moving, so you can't really uh, cut it open. Um, uh, and the heart's filled with blood. So if you, cut, if you do manage to cut it open, you would bleed to death. So the only way to operate on a heart is to stop it, and that would result in brain and organ damage. So th- this was a unique obstacle that the book talks about how, you know, how scientists sort of overcame uh, over the centuries. And it wasn't that long ago that these major obstacles were, were overcome. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, if you, if you talk about operating on the heart, now we know that you need a heart-lung machine. But before a heart-lung machine was, uh, was invented, uh, in the 1950s, um, doctors and scientists had to find other ways to operate, and you know, like I said, you know, you can't cut the heart open or you would bleed to death. So, one pretty fantastic, almost science fictiony method for operating on the heart was devised by a guy named Walt Lillehei, who's generally considered the most innovative surgeon of the 20th century. And his idea was was based on on a Pregnant mother carrying a baby. Now, a baby can't a baby in the womb, a fetus uh, can't breathe because it's it's uh, floating in fluid. Mm-hmm. So it receives oxygen from uh, from its mother. So um, what Lilahai thought was, well, if I'm going to operate on a baby, for example, with a congenital heart defect, why don't I hook the baby up to his parent and have the parent's circulation essentially? Um, serve as the baby's heart and lungs while the baby's heart is stopped and cut open. And that was a human heart-lung machine. And you can imagine the the uproar uh, in, uh, you know across the medical community. The people said this is the first operation in, hum- in human history that could kill two people. So these were some of the crazy things that doctors and scientists did um, to um, sort of overcome some of these unique obstacles posed by the heart that and, and, and the book describes these um, these innovations in a lot of detail
0: I, I read your book and I enjoyed it because I have heart issues myself and actually, um, your book made me afraid of my heart mm. because so many things can go wrong
1: Yes, um, you know, I discovered uh, a few years back um, uh, when I had a uh, sort of routine cat scan. I was a first responder at nine eleven and I was having some um, bronchitis and breathing issues. So uh, uh, a pulmonologist uh, sent me for a CAT scan and it found I had um, coronary plaque. And then I went for a, a, a CAT scan that showed that I had blockages in my coronary arteries that were, you know, not <laughs> insignificant. And so I myself also sort of have this fear, you know, and I've, I've always had actually this fear of the human heart because you know it's the only organ that can kill you suddenly. You could be healthy, walking around, talking with your friends, um, loving life, and then just suddenly be felled. Um, And that's what happened to both my grandparents. And that was one of the reasons why I grew up with this fear of the heart as the executioner of mostly men, at least in my experience, in the prime of their lives.
0: You still feel that way? I think
1: that we've come a long way. Uh, We have amazing technologies today. We have amazing drugs. um, But we have... um, uh, I think come toward the near the end of what I think c- the conventional technological paradigm can achieve in pr- in prolonging our lives and I think that that the view of the of the human heart is that it 's a machine, but we know that the ancient philosophers thought of the human heart as the seat of the soul or the repository of the emotions, and I think that we have to pay a lot more attention to our emotional lives. Um, to get the kind of
0: benefit to our heart health that we're used to getting from technology. I I want to go into that in a little more detail. But just referring back to something you said a moment ago, I have a quote here Mm -hmm. from the book in which you say cardiology may have reached the limits of what it can do to prolong life. That's fairly disquieting. (laughs) It is. um,
1: But if you view it in its historical context, um, it's actually pretty uplifting. Uh, heart disease was the number one killer. Has been the number one killer in the United States um, for the last century. The only year that it was eclipsed was 1918, the year the year of the great uh, epidemic, epidemic of, sure. of, of influenza. Mm-hmm. Um, th- uh, across the world, 18 million people die every year of heart disease. So the the mortality from heart disease peaked the year I was born, 1968, and ever since then there's been a steady decline. So if you look at it historically, um, we have achieved a lot. In fact, I would say that heart science is one of the great success stories of the 20th century. But more recently, a lot of studies seem to suggest that the decline in cardiovascular mortality is slowing down. And there was a point a few years back where people thought that cancer would eclipse heart disease as the number one killer. That hasn't happened, mainly because heart disease is... Um, the, the decline in heart disease deaths is slowing down so much.
0: What remains to be done? If, if we have reached uh, the end, really, of, of progress, if you can wave that magic wand, what would uh, you be asking it to do?
1: Yeah, well, let me qualify by saying that I don't think we've reached the end of of, of progress, but I do think that, that there comes a point where uh, you can only expect technology to offer so much. So, for example, when people had heart attacks in the 1950s and 60s, they had a 30% mortality in the hospital. Mm -hmm. One out of three patients died. Now it's 3%. So, you know, we have sort of become the victims of our own success. You know, cardiovascular science has done so much to prolong life that we can't expect the same kind of progress. So what I would say is let's look at areas that have been largely ignored, like our emotional lives. The American Heart Association still doesn't consider stress, emotional stress, as a modifiable risk factor for heart disease, unlike high cholesterol, for example, or hypertension. And mainly, I think, because it's easier to lower cholesterol than it is to lower emotional and social disruption. So I think we have to pay a lot more attention. I think that is the sort of the next frontier in heart health
0: well that 's what uh, the people like you are asking us to do all the time to modify our diets and exercise and and relax. I mean in right. your book you you get into yoga and Zen and that sort of thing as yes. being very important in this yes. area yes yeah. and, you know uh, in reading your book and looking at the illustrations i couldn 't uh, help, but think of the heart as kind of a Rube Goldberg device. Mm. I mean, obviously, what it does is is remarkable. Yes, but the way it's kind of put together, it's like some like a committee did it. If you yes. understand what I'm saying. Yes, yes, it's
1: yeah. I, it's <clears throat> fascinating. Um, you know, it, it's like it's like the most uh, intricate machine. Um, you know, I I used to think of it as a house. In fact, I do describe it as a house. But it's it's a house that's been designed over many thousands millions of years um where the plumbing and the wiring is not you know readily discernible but it's that plumbing and wiring is so essential for the house to to function the way it's supposed to um so yeah in 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 the book i try to explain the basics about how the heart works in a way that's friendly to layman terms so that that, um, that people really understand how we've come to make the progress that we have. And, and they can use the knowledge to improve their own heart health and, and sort of improve their own sophistication with, with you know, the basics of, of medical science.
0: And it's a house that generates its own electricity. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about that. That's a remarkable part of the story. I mean, I had no idea. Yeah. So the heart is fundamentally an electrical organ. And,
1: you know... Um, uh, it, what What happens is that um, it it generates a uh, self sustaining electrical impulse um, you know way up high in the top chamber that that propagates downward you know it 's like uh, when you hold a, a rope tied to a wall and you jerk it up there 's a wave that propagates down that rope. And the same thing happens uh, in the heart. And, of course, it's very intricate and the, the, the wave slows down it's in certain spots. Sometimes the wave starts to circulate in these, in these um, uh, very counterproductive ways uh, that can cause the heart to actually stop or to fibrillate. Um, that, incidentally, was discovered by a guy who um, – a phenomenal uh, physiologist um, named George Mines who actually fibrillated his own heart mm. and died – in the course of 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 understanding how the heart the heart's electrical properties function, and the book really talks a lot about some of the very outlandish things that people did in in for us to be able to come to our current understanding about how the heart works. A lot of self experimentation. People died, um, scarred up their own veins. I mean, uh,
0: so it's it, it, we we owe a real debt to to some of these pioneers. Yeah, they certainly were dedicated to the craft. There's no question about that, given what they uh, did to themselves. Yes. We're talking to Dr. Sandeep Johar, who is the author of Heart, a History. We'll come back and continue this conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with
0: undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Johar, author of Heart, A History. Let's talk for a moment, as you did at the beginning of the book, about the metaphorical heart. Something about the heart since the beginning of time, I guess, has always captured the imagination. You indicated that early on, but it's always been a great mystery and a great source of many different things for people. Tell us about some of those things that you found and find most interesting. I find it fascinating
1: that... The heart, you know, in the conception of the ancient philosophers was, you know, considered the central point of the body. It was uh, a—various philosophers considered it a sentry um, that gave warning signals about potential dangers. Uh, Others thought of it as the seat of the soul. Uh, Poets and philosophers throughout the centuries have have talked about the heart as— the locus of the emotions or the affections, and one thing I found fascinating um, and, and, and and really motivated me to write this book is that you know when I was in training, we just talked about the heart as this very complex biomechanical pump you know it had certain wires that needed to be fixed sometimes and pipes that needed to be unclogged and 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 sometimes the whole thing needed to be replaced. Um, but it was fundamentally a machine and 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 we know today uh i believe that the heart is just so much more than that that the metaphorical conception of the heart as being the the container of the emotions isn't uh precisely true uh i don't think the heart does contain the emotions but but our emotional lives are written on our hearts we know Today, that emotional disruption causes a lot of damage. Um, I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, about a week ago about this phenomenon called the broken heart syndrome, where where people usually after a, a romantic breakup or the death of a spouse will will actually suffer um, a an acute decrease in their heart function, and it's called takotsubo cardiomyopathy, and it's it's called that because the heart. Changes into a distinctive shape that actually resembles a Japanese octopus trapping pot called takasubo and, um, and 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 this has been seen now uh, for a couple of decades it 's relatively new and it was first seen in in people who suffered emotional and physical trauma but didn 't die from the trauma they died from from cardiac causes and Autopsy studies showed that their hearts had actually acutely weakened so there is this sense that heartbreak that, that the poets talk about actually has a biological manifestation.
0: How did the heart become uh, the symbol of love? The heart as a symbol as we know it, and we yeah. see it, we're all familiar with that. Yeah. The actual heart doesn't look very much like that at all. Yeah, I know. So <clears throat> the, there's,
1: there's a lot of mystery behind that. Um, the, the shape, the Valentine shape... Um, is found in seeds and um, a, a, and the cross sections of seeds and and, and various plants, um, uh, and it it also resembles a seed called silphium, which was used for birth control, um, you know, way back when, and that may be one of the reasons why the heart became associated with sex and romantic love. Um, we don't we don't really know, but but we do know that by the 13th century or so. Uh, poets were using the heart shape to convey love. They were painting it red, which is the color of blood, which is, became a symbol of passion. Um, and uh, and pretty soon you had uh, the Catholic Church, um, you know, using the Valentine heart um, as a, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which would was adorned with uh, thorns and and emitted a sort of ethereal light. Um, so, this sort of metaphorical conception of, of of the the heart as the the symbol of love, whether it 's sexual or romantic love or or even monastic love, um, has been present in you know in in our culture for
0: for centuries so so we know that the heart uh, can be affected by emotion as you 've indicated yes. a couple of times. And you've indicated uh, how it is affected. How about stress? If stress is not the, is not the principal villain in all of this, it, it does have some effect on the heart. I'm sure. Absolutely. So you know, you,
1: you, I, I distinguish in the book between acute stress and chronic stress. So acute stress is like is like <clears throat> the broken heart syndrome. You know, you, you suffer a romantic breakup or or the death of a of a husband, and and you you develop this acute. Um, congestive heart failure or, and sometimes death. Um, chronic stress is a more insidious um, thing, uh, but there's a lot of evidence to show that, that people who are unhappy in their marriages, uh, unhappy in their jobs, um, have um, this chronic sort of hormonal activation that can, that can damage the heart. And uh, there have been, uh, and I talk about this in great detail in the book. You know, for example, you look at Japanese immigrants, natives in Japan mm-hmm. don't have heart disease; they have very little coronary disease. But Japanese immigrants who move to the U.S. have a lot of heart disease. Now, people used to say, "Oh, this is just because they eat poorly like mm-hmm. Americans do," but it turns out that that if you correct for that. The Japanese Im- immigrants, if you separate them into two, two groups, one that sort of retains their japanese in terms of, like, you know, uh, culture, and those who become more westernized. The westernized Japanese immigrants develop a lot more heart disease than those who sort of maintain their cultural ties. So it's very clear that cultural and social factors affect heart disease um, it would be impossible to explain that without invoking that as a as a as a thesis. So, so I, I talk a lot about uh, that and 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 how other forms of stress increase the risk
0: of coronary disease. It seems to me that that what is happening is that the heart is damaged and potentially destroyed, if that's the right word to use, more over time than in sudden incidents. Yes.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah. It's it, it's a, it's slowly. <clears throat> Stress slowly corrodes the arteries um and 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 uh you know uh, I talk in the book about um uh, a study that was done uh where people were separated into two groups: one had a you know healthy diet exercise and stress management, and another group that had mm-hmm. sort of usual care now the stress the the group that had the intensive you know diet stress management et cetera they had regression of their heart disease, regression of the coronary disease. Uh, The group that didn't um, had progression. Now, there were people in the group that didn't um, who followed actually really um, uh, healthy diets. The only thing that was missing is that they didn't have the stress management piece, Mm -hmm. and their heart disease still progressed. So it's very clear from such studies that stress management is as important, if not more important, for the development of heart disease than um, uh, diet or exercise.
0: What is the, has the most damage potential for the heart uh, in, internally? Is it plaque? I mean, we talk about stress, and I, I yeah. get that. But all we're hearing about anymore is the plaque buildup and cholesterol, and that uh, ultimately yeah. if you don't deal with that, uh, it's going to kill you. Yeah.
1: So, so what causes plaque buildup? Um, one thing is that the the way we understand how plaque forms is that there 's a little bit of plaque, and then that plaque ruptures, and um, platelets and other blood cells come and 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 uh, and sort of build the plaque even more so so what causes that rupture? Well, one of the things that causes it is stress emotional mm-hmm. stress emotional stress can cause ruptures that can actually cause a full-blown heart attack or cause sort of smaller uh, disruptions and ruptures that that cause the plaque to build up. So um, so it's pretty clear that you have to keep your cholesterol under control, but if you do that, you're only sort of going halfway. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm looking over a, a list here taken from your book of, uh, of the various advances that have taken place, and a couple of them I'd like you just to talk about if you don't mind. You've already talked about early, uh, early surgeries. Uh, and cross-circulation, which is when you have two humans yes. h- hooked to each other and they're really – how did that work out by them? Was it successful most of the time it, it, or part of the time? It, it, it was – compared
1: to the natural history of kids with congenital heart defects in the 40s mm-hmm. and early 50s before cross-circulation, it was considered – it was a success. So so kids lived longer. There were deaths, but um, – but, uh, Historians have judged cross-circulation to be successful mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, there, there was uh, definitely a decrease in mortality in, in, in kids with heart defects mm-hmm. using the technique. It wasn't a perfect technique, and there were cases I talk about in the book where a healthy parent um, died or developed brain damage because of you know problems with hooking up the, circul- mm-hmm. the, the, the circulatory systems of the two humans um, and developing ear bubbles and so on, but... Um, so yeah, I mean that's uh, cross circulation was
0: successful. No, you talk about uh, talk about that and the, uh, the the notion of genetics playing a role. Congenital heart failure in a young child, for instance, is is the genetic component to all of this a very significant one or not so significant?
1: It is. Um, you know, we 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 know. I mean, today um, we still know that that um, that uh, you know thirty thousand or so kids with congenital heart congenital heart disease um you know die in the United States. So um uh and, and most of that is driven um that that's not acquired. That's congenital. It's mm. that's that's through heredity. Mm. So um problems like like uh holes in you know between the chambers of the heart or uh, or having um single uh heart chambers instead of dual heart chambers, all these things
0: um, are driven by genetics yeah you hear a lot of of people let 's say in their forties, for instance, presumably very, very healthy or just walking down the street or jogging and and drop dead. Mm. And then you hear that, well, his father died of heart failure when he was 42. Mm, I mean, you hear that a lot.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, There was the famous case of the uh, uh, the long-distance runner who had written books. I I forget his name, but um, um, uh, Healy maybe. Um, Anyway, he'd written about how running helps prolong life. And, yeah, he died suddenly in his 40s. Uh, may have been in his early 50s while running so you know it, it, it's it, there there's no you know one size fits all approach you know you really have to um you know bring in all the di- different data streams you know what's <clears throat> your cholesterol what's your blood pressure what are your family genes um and what is your emotional stress and look at the whole picture uh, to devise you know a proper uh treatment plan
0: yeah. if you had no plaque in your heart and if you ate all the things you were supposed to do and had all the and did the exercise you were supposed to do, how long would the human heart last would ultimately it just wear out
1: well that 's a really good question mm-hmm. i mean you know I think the 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 question really more fundamentally is you know is there a time limit on human life mm-hmm. you know um and, you know, has nature sort of created organisms to die to make room for other organisms to propagate life? Um, you know, there is uh, evidence that um, there's so-called cell death or apoptosis that occurs in, in, in the body as it ages. Um, but, you know, we do know that, that in a Petri dish, if you culture um, chicken heart cells, chick heart cells, um, uh, those cells can beat for something like 30 years, mm-hmm. um, much longer than a typical chicken lives. So, so um, there's something about the heart that just makes it want to beat. And that, that experiment I'm describing, which I do talk about in the book, won a Nobel Prize. Um, uh, Alexis Carell um, you know, did that experiment showing that the
0: heart cells, they want to beat you know and and it's it's hard to turn them off well gerontologists are saying today by the middle of this century we could be living to be 120 years old mm. the heart is capable then you think of keeping up with that should that occur i think the heart
1: <clears throat> probably could keep up with that but i think um there are uh you know the heart's not the only actor in the body yeah. uh you know there 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 are um uh there are other links that are that are potentially weak
0: yeah. Where are we right now with regard to the artificial heart? You spend a lot of time on that in the book yeah. and uh, the difficulties in coming up with something that would work. Yeah. Uh, how, how, um, how, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How effective are they
1: now? They're very effective, but they have a lot of complications. So you remember the first total artificial heart, permanent art- artificial heart, was implanted a Barney Clark mm-hmm. in 1982. Uh, he was a, a retired dentist Seattle had end-stage heart failure. Went to Utah, got uh, artificial. He actually went to a cow lab and saw how calves were being kept alive with these artificial hearts. And he said, "I want nothing to do with it." Mm. But then he got sicker and eventually agreed. Um, he lived for 112 days. I talk about this in a lot of detail in the book. And you know, a lot of people feel felt at the time and, and still f- feel that that um, you know he um, you know. He didn't die for 112 days, but did he really live? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he stayed uh, for that entire time in the hospital. And I think that artificial hearts today, um, total artificial hearts have a lot of problems, the same sorts of problems that they had back then. Um, You know, blood doesn't want to course through plastic and metal. It much prefers a human artery. It coagulates, doesn't it? It coagulates. it, it, It clots, and clots can form strokes and so on. So the workhorse of heart support today is something called an LVAD which is what uh, Dick Cheney got uh before his uh his transplant and um that's uh sort of the you know but but even LVADs have a lot of issues best to keep your own heart
0: yeah well, transplants seem to be working pretty well these days. Cheney's still with us yes yeah. yes,
1: yeah yeah. Heart transplants do um are are very effective they're probably the most effective treatment for end stage heart failure. People can live on average um uh you know fourteen or so years, sometimes longer sometimes shorter, but they also have to take a very complicated drug regimen so it's it's not some- you know it's not something that that we want to do lightly.
0: Yeah, and they can be hard to find, I'm told. Yes. Sure. <laughs> yes. One true. final question. I know you've had a long day already, but I was struck in the book by the fact that most of the experimentation, as I saw it in the book, um, with, uh, with the heart was performed uh, on dogs. Yes. And I would have thought maybe pigs would have been a better choice because I've always under the impression their hearts are a lot more like ours.
1: Yeah. Dog hearts, um, they have sort of a unique <clears throat> uh, circulation. So you're, you're right. Pig hearts... Do resemble human hearts more closely. Um, in fact, uh, when we talk about xenotransplantation, having um, you know animal organs be transplanted, the model for that is the pig heart. Yeah. But uh, you're right. A lot of the research done in the 40s and 50s uh, was on dogs. Um, that may have been just because they were you know they were they were easier to cultivate. Um, it, it, it's not clear. But um, but uh, the 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 pumping of dog hearts is actually very similar to um to human hearts and 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 the pump studies were mostly done on dog hearts. The the coronary blood flow types of studies um, and the uh, electrical studies were done more on pig hearts.
0: Well, I have to say, doctor, that your book is really a fascinating read. Thank you. And I enjoyed it very much and learned a whole heck of a lot by both Great. reading the book and and talking with you now. Is there a final thought you'd like to leave our audience with, some good advice to keep that thing pumping and ticking for as long as it can?
1: Well, you know, I mean, it's it, it just reiterate what I said earlier that that, you know, we have to pay attention to our emotional lives. That we have come so far in cardiac science, but um, you know, a relatively unexplored uh, area in cardiac science is how that this mind-heart connection. And I, and I think that that's uh, something that that we really need to pay more attention to. How you cope with with stress, how you transcend distress, the quality of your relationships these things are also a matter of life and death.
0: In other words, just chill. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's that's a succinct way of putting it.
0: Right. Doctor, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Sandeep Johar, author of Heart, A History. He's a medical student at Washington University more than a decade ago.